Now we are going to uh, proceed with our public affairs segment. And to do that, we're joined by Professor Gary Loop, who is a professor of history at Tufts, Tufts University. Gary, uh, are you with us? And thanks for joining I us. I am indeed. Thank you so much for being with us tonight, taking time to be on WPKN. And um, I just want to mention that uh, Professor Loop is uh, author of many articles on, U- on Ukraine and also on Japanese history with a focus on labor, class, and gender. And he's also uh, conducted research on the global history of Buddhism and pre-modern Western contacts with it. He's the author of Servants, Shop Hands, and Laborers in the city, Cities of Tokugawa, Japan. Gary Loop has uh, also been on the WPKN's Airwaves before. We actually interviewed him two years ago on a similar topic to what we're going to be talking about tonight because um, this uh, issue of Ukraine has um, risen to the level of crisis again. And uh, I just want to sort of kick us off, Gary, with um, these, these comments here that the U.S. foreign policy establishment has been predicting a Russian invasion of Ukraine for more than a few years, and they've been wrong repeatedly. And yet they continue to gin up the hysteria about an imminent invasion and Russia's expansionist designs to swallow up not just Ukraine, but potentially a good portion of Eastern Europe. And this hysteria is echoed throughout the corporate print and cable media. So can you provide some actual background and historical context for what is called a crisis, this current I, I, situation? Uh, I, I certainly can, um, but I, I'd just like to respond to um, a comment that you, you just made about uh, the media promoting a crisis, which is, is certainly true, but I think it, it should be emphasized that they're trying to. Um, and um, I, I think perhaps not um, drawing the response that they had hoped for, because uh, this is a very different climate than the Cold War climate. And it is as though they are referring back to those very different times with the expectation that the American public and allies in Europe will respond the same way. But I have the feeling that they're trying to provoke a crisis atmosphere and people are shrugging their shoulders. But I also realize they have the the power to um, rather hastily brainwash people into supporting moves that are absolutely um, horrifically wrong, as has happened multiple times in this century. So anyway, um, I, I thought that I'd um, first of all summarize what I think is the main point, and that is that, no, Russia is not trying to invade uh, Ukraine. It is responding defensively on its border, but it is not trying to invade Ukraine. Rather, the U.S. is trying to pull Ukraine into an anti-Russian military alliance. So it's the U.S., in a sense, that is the aggressor here through this relentless uh, effort to integrate Ukraine into its military alliance. And if you look at the map and and consider the implications of that, it must be perceived in the Kremlin as comparable to Mexico joining a hostile military alliance. 
So that's what's going on. It, it, and it's about um, uh, the U.S. under Biden, not under Trump, who was not particularly interested in expanding NATO into Ukraine. But it's under the current president, the supposedly decent alternative to Trump, who has been a longstanding advocate not only of NATO expansion, it was indeed part of his campaign literature. He's always pushed for a stronger NATO, the expansion of NATO. There was nothing hidden about it. And he was uh, for a time the U.S. point man under um, Barack Obama of uh, relations with Ukraine. And that's after the U.S. backed coup in February 2014. Um, And uh, the U.S. having achieved regime change anti-democratically in Ukraine at that time, sought to uh, reform the the state such that it would be suitable as uh, an entrant into NATO, which would mean getting German and other countries' approval, which would mean to get rid at least of the rampant corruption in Ukraine so that other countries wouldn't have a reason to exclude Ukraine. But anyway, I see I'm, I'm talking more just about the general situation. But maybe for um, just a series of points, if I can continue, and Richard, please interrupt me. If I have no uh, no desire to interrupt you. Okay, okay. then, then that's several, several points. Just that uh, I was kind of thinking about points that might come up in conversation with a friend or a stranger at a bar, but... Um, when there's concern about Ukraine, when it comes up in conversation, I would say Ukraine is very far away. It's about 5,000 miles from Boston. I um, mean, I'm not saying this to say one should be indifferent to remote places. That's not the point at all. My, my point is to raise the issue of why are we expected as the people of this country to feel some sense of urgency about some threat in this country that is so far away. And um, you can point out that there is a deliberate effort underway to make you believe that the Russians uh, are threatening either us, or this is better and easier, our allies, that is, giving Americans the or people who live in this country the impression that somehow the Europeans are appealing for aid against the, the Russians they perceive as a threat. The problem is they don't, of course, see Russia as much of a threat for the most part. But the U.S. continues to posture as this leader of a, a free world. Um, one should also point out that the Ukrainian people have views of their own and dignified them to the extent that you concede that there are differences among them, really intense political differences, like in many countries, like in this one. And to uh, depict, as the State Department does, Ukraine as a country united, desirous of unity with uh, the NATO countries, uh, this is nonsense. Um, in the last free election in Ukraine in 2010, an anti-NATO candidate was elected in what was seen generally as a free and fair election and indeed certified 
as such by official uh, ballot viewers like former President Carter. That democratically elected president of Ukraine was overthrown in a, a violent upheaval, a coup, which Stratford called the most uh, open coup in modern history, and a pro-NATO group installed. But uh, we're not told about that. News com- or, uh, the newscasters don't put this context uh, uh, on the table when they're talking about uh, when they're reporting on present-day Ukraine. Um, but that's uh, one series of points. The second is that, um, well, I think I've already covered it, that, that uh, the Russian invasion has always been a trumped-up threat in order to justify something rather hard to justify, which is the um, expansion of this military alliance that in its original design was to prevent the Soviet Union, which had liberated Eastern Europe from the Nazis and therefore uh, occupied territory in much the same way as the U.S. has done and continues to do. But the idea was to prevent a, a, a Soviet invasion of Europe. It was necessary to bring lots of U.S. troops or to maintain them in Europe for the defense of Europe, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And all this was associated with a, an international communist conspiracy with tentacles in all countries in labor movements and so on. That was the intention of NATO, to be an anti-Soviet anti-communist, somehow defensive organization, which was never deployed militarily in the whole course of the Cold War, but has only been used subsequently for purposes having nothing to do with those initial reasons in 1949. So NATO struggling for some sort of explanation for its existence talks about um, uh, stabilizing, maintaining stability, and uh, the more that it expands, presumably the more stable and secure all of Europe is. Against who? There is no lingering communist threat, even in the weird way it was conceptualized by the anti-communist forces in this country. That's gone. There is no international movement headquartered in Moscow. Russia has fully embraced capitalism, um, if not uh, uh, ideal democracy, not that the U.S. is in any position to talk to anybody about ideal democracy. But in any case, um, we have to ask, is Russia really a threat? Uh, Because that question is not even raised in the media. It's something that is supposed to be assumed as a matter of doctrine. Um, uh, A third point um, is that um, the world has become multipolar. Principal reason being that the Chinese economy has advanced so that it is now economically the equal of the United States, and so is Europe. Those are the three great economic powers. And um, the, the ties which bound Europe to the United States are fraying more and more conspicuously, uh, particularly in relation to France, but also in relation to Germany. So 
the U.S. no longer has the uh, authority to simply stride in the room and say, thank, you know, let, let's have applause for the president of the United States. You might recall that um, Vice President Pence under uh, Trump went to a gathering in Europe and said, I bring you the greetings of the president of the United States. And there was stony silence. And then Joe Biden, following up, went to Europe and said, America is back, expecting applause. <laughs> and instead, he got rather lukewarm uh, uh, applause. That is, the U.S. is not in a position to call the shots everywhere anymore. That's why Ukraine is so desperate and why the U.S. effort to get all its allies on board is so important. Um, let me, let me Let's just see. Yeah, maybe, maybe uh, <laughs> since I'm sort of stumbling over the reading of my own notes. Um, <laughs> I, 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 we've all been there, and I'm probably going to do some stumbling myself tonight. But I do want to mention that we are speaking with Professor Gary Loop. He teaches at Tufts University, teaches history there. And he is, uh, as we can see, very uh, deeply knowledgeable about uh, the situation in Ukraine and all the intersection of uh, foreign policy uh, uh, problems and issues that that uh, that arise from that. And uh, one thing I did want to say, uh, Gary, while I have the the uh, room to say it here, is that um, I saw something in the New York Post that I found to be uh, very interesting coming from that particular news source said Ukraine celebrated its day of the armed forces holiday mm -hmm. on, on Monday. This, this, uh, article, I believe is stated, um, I'm not exactly sure this, this sometime mid December with a showy display of American armored vehicles and weapons in an attempt to flex its power as tensions escalate with neighboring Russia. Yes. And, um, and then the AP reported on December 17th that more than $60 million worth of weapons and other equipment uh, went to Ukraine as part of the U.S. security aid program uh, with that security. country. The U.S. Em uh, embassy in Kiev uh, announced on Wednesday. The um, embassy tweeted that the equipment is Office of Defense Corporation uh, you know, uh, issue and received Tuesday included javelin anti-tank missiles, radios, yeah. and and uh, and uh, ammunition. Well, so, those those were the ones, or or that was the issue in the Trump investigation that he was withholding those missiles, or some of them. Um, so um, what you're talking about is not something that is just in the last few weeks, but those missiles have been supplied for, well, even uh, while Trump was still president, because he was ultimately obliged to release them when he came under such scrutiny. But uh, I think Trump was not inclined to provoke Russia over Ukraine, and it's not because he was a puppet of Russia, but because he simply didn't see in however he views the world, he didn't see NATO as something that was continuously relevant. In fact, he raised that specifically um, during his campaign. Is it really relevant anymore? 
I don't think he really understood the meaning of his own question. But the answer would be, no, it's not relevant. The only thing that it does now is to serve um, as a kind of rallying point to get the other members to do things like bomb Libya, which turned out disastrously, or to um, collectively go to war with Afghanistan, which also turned out disastrously and left a lot of Europeans feeling embittered. But um, I, I think that um, one has to, to think about the importance of Russophobia and uh, the kind of essentialization of the Russians that I was used to growing up. And Richard, I think you would probably recall films like um, uh, Red Dawn, um, uh, but but films that uh, depicted the Soviet people, but principally the Russian people, as automatons, as uh, just a wholly different sort of people. And now you hear people like Jake Tapper and the people that they interview on CNN, former State Department officials and so on, saying authoritatively, well, there's just something in the Russian personality. Or Russian culture has this preference for strong leaders. And they don't know what they're talking about. It's simply a way of saying these people, even though there's no Communist Party of the Soviet Union anymore, even though... You know, whatever Marxism appeals to youth throughout the world today, it's not led by anybody in Moscow. Instead of uh, gauging all of that, the people in the State Department act as though there's never really been a collapse of the Soviet Union. But they want to use the tropes, all that baggage they want to sustain in a completely new context. And so uh, Putin is repeatedly accused of wanting to revive the old Soviet Union, um, which is absolutely not the case. And it's, it's not a fair citation of his comments. But that has been kind of become a standard reference. Well, we know that he wants to restore the Soviet Union. So we've got to go to the aid of, of Ukraine. Or who's next? Belarus. Yeah, well, actually, that brings to mind that that quote or misquote taken or quote taken out of context that Putin when Putin said, uh, you know, um, we we uh, I, I don't know, long for or there, there's a sentimentality for the restoration yeah. of the Soviet uh, state. And then <laughs> the, the that's the part that's quoted. The, the part that isn't quoted uh would is that you'd have to be crazy to think that could actually happen. Right. I, I think the quote, I, I recall it too, it was that um, people who feel no nostalgia for the Soviet Union have no heart. There you go. And the yeah. people who want to restore it have no brain. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's a pretty categorical refutation of what he's being accused of, is the desire to revive the Soviet Union. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you, uh, you know, having mentioned the, this uh, armament that's happening, uh, mm. influx of, of weaponry and uh, uh, quite sophisticated weaponry to Ukraine. What, what impact is that having in terms of trying to stabilize the situation with Russia? 
Uh, we are complaining mm-hmm. that Russia has moved within the ba- it's the boundaries of its own country, military uh, personnel to the eastern border of Ukraine. Um, yeah. They have not crossed into Ukraine, and yet we are all you know in a in a kerfuffle because the, they they move troops within. Meanwhile, well, we're su- yeah. supplying Ukraine with all kinds of armaments. We're actually running military maneuvers in the Black Sea and actually flying B-52 bombers armed with nuclear weapons very near to the Russian mainland and over yeah. Crimea. So I'm just wondering, how do we uh, calculate the effect of this kind of brinksmanship on, uh, on this ability to navigate uh, any kind of dispute between... Uh, well, well, first, I, I, just to, to think about the chronology of what's happened here. Um, the, the U.S. made it known its intention to uh, admit Ukraine, to recruit it into NATO as early as 2008. Uh, there was a meeting of NATO, and it was uh, announced that ultimately, it was vague, Georgia and Ukraine would also join the alliance, meaning there's a period in which they have to undergo the necessary reforms to make them acceptable to everybody. But that was uh, the result of discussion within NATO. They probably reflected not just a kind of general acceptance of expansion, but a desire to go slow and not to provoke Russia for, you know, whatever. But in 2008, nevertheless, NATO issued a statement um, talking about the uh, inclusion of both Georgia and Ukraine. Earlier, Moscow had specifically communicated um, with the outgoing Bush administration saying, um, this is a red line. We will not accept these countries joining a hostile military alliance. And it's at that time that Russia so-called invaded Georgia, which basically is saying it backed the, succession, the secessionist republics of Abkhazia and South Ossetia, which are now virtually independent under Russian protection and could quickly be incorporated into uh, the Russian Federation. Uh, but why? Because the people are asking for it, as are people in Donbass, in uh, uh, the eastern Ukraine. But anyway, the the basic context is that the U.S. said, we're going to expand to Ukraine. The Russians said, no, don't do that. And the Russians have been able to take certain measures ever since to prevent NATO or discourage it from either including Georgia or Ukraine. And under um, uh, Trump, the effort pretty much collapsed because there was no desire or no will on the part of the president. But now Biden wants to go back and to uh, to meet that commitment and to include Ukraine. And what has happened in the meantime? In 2014, the anti-NATO democratically elected regime was overthrown by the pro-NATO, pro-U.S. fascist-backed government, a version of which continues until now. And the, uh, the fact that that government came to power the way that it did in a violent coup and proceeded 
almost immediately to uh, adopt legislation discriminatory to the Russian-speaking people of the Donbass region, the eastern region, cause that region to reject the new government and to secede, in a sense. So now they are not being administered by Kiev, but uh, have established so-called People's Republics. And they do so with more or less open Russian uh, assistance. And that is called by the U.S. media... Russian aggression, even a, a Russian invasion of the Donbass. As for the Crimea, that was seized by uh, Russia, meaning re-annexed into Russia, of which it had been part from the 16 or I'm for, from the uh, the 1780s through the 1950s, accorded by the Soviet Union to Ukraine, expanded to include a large Russian section. Um, one has to understand that that history of um, uh, the intention of the U.S. to integrate Ukraine, uh, dissent within Ukrainian society about that um, uh, uh, that prospect, the U.S. getting its people in government through that coup in 2014 that provoked the russians to seize control um, of the crimean peninsula because otherwise they felt that that historical center of naval power would pass to hostile nato so again the the actions of the russians seem i think to uh, an uh, a neutral observer to be quite rationally defensive. And why the U.S. would supply anti-tank missiles uh, in that situation? Uh, why were they not necessary under the former regime that was overthrown? Uh, these are questions that the media is not asking. But if they were to ask them, I think there's only one uh, answer that... Uh, the U.S. is trying to threaten Russia as much as possible to make it possible to actually draw in Ukraine, start stationing uh, U.S. forces in the country, uh, place nuclear arms there, as they've been placed in uh, Turkey in the past. Uh, one can understand the Russian concern. We're speaking with Gary Loop. He's a professor of history at Tufts University joining us tonight to speak about the situation vis-a-vis uh, -vis Ukraine and Russia. And uh, my name is Richard Hill. This is First Tuesday, Rainy Day Radio, and you're listening to WPKN in Bridgeport. Uh, I want you to stay tuned after this interview uh, for, uh, well, I'm going to play some music, and then Joseph Chelly is going to take over and play probably some very interesting stuff, as he usually does. Um, so uh, there's one thing that probably should be uh, underscored or revisited, and that is the original promise by, uh, let's see, what, I'm trying to think of who, who made the first promise of this. It was, I know, George H.W. Bush and, uh, and made, yeah, a, made yeah. a promise to uh, uh, Gorbachev, the uh, uh, president or prime minister of Russia at that time, uh, that 
Well, you, why don't you explain it from there? I think you know what I'm talking well, about. Well, it, it was um, just at the, well, it was after the fall or during the fall of the Berlin Wall. And Gorbachev had um, uh, essentially conceded that uh, East Germany would join West Germany and Germany would be reunited. And what he asked in return, since that meant the expansion of the NATO border to include all of Eastern Germany, which had been the center of Warsaw Pact power up until that point. But he said, once that you've, you've expanded to include all Germany, we don't want you to expand to the east. And that's the promise that was made. No, we will not expand one inch eastward. However, it wasn't written down. But James Baker, as Secretary of State, uh, repeated this promise publicly in Moscow and in official contexts. So it's kind of, well, yes, if you want to say, well, we didn't write it down, so it doesn't apply. It's not exactly morally convincing, is it? But, but that's the idea that, um, well, there's nothing to prevent us from expanding this military alliance because we never formally promised anybody anything, but that you still have to justify your existence somehow. Yeah, I think that's the excellent point and fascinating point that you made is that uh, NATO now has this uh, bulging uh, alliance, you know, with countries coming out of every orifice, so to speak, and really nobody, no, nowhere to focus it on. And I think that's also true, by the way, of uh, just unilaterally the United States uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union. We had this gigantic uh, military industrial complex, national security state, and very, very, um, exp- very much uh, expansionist foreign policy with U.S. bases all over the place. And we needed a new enemy, you know. It started with the war on terror, and now it has found its cozy little nick, nook again with uh, focusing all its animus on the so- on former Soviet Union, Russia, which, I, I, I mean, it just, it always boggles my mind when I think of how feckless the American commentary is on this issue as if, um, you know, Putin was the, you know, Dr. No, you know, like some kind of a James Bond villain that's pulling strings and, and, and just turning the world into a, uh, you know, a mosh pit of, of uh, conflict and, and corruption. And, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, you want to look for villains I would. I would. Move you look on. at it, look at the mega data surveillance of the the U.S. empire. Putin's got nothing on that operation. Yeah. Well, Gary Loop, um, I'm trying to going to ask you just at the end of our conversation here. If you have, are there any points that you care to make? Uh, you know, as a wrap up of of this uh, this little conversation we had tonight. Um, I, I think that often an image speaks uh, much more than words. And um, if the newscasters, when talking about Ukraine, would have maps 
behind them, showing where it is. There's, you know, extraordinary geographical ignorance in this country because of the way the educational system dissuades people from looking at the world as a whole. But if you have maps, you can uh, show a lot of things without telling. And if you show the gradual expansion of NATO in a period in which there's no conflict in Europe, no major overriding one to justify it, you see the expansion of NATO, and then you see where it has been deployed, which had nothing to do with with uh, Cold War regions. It's been used in Bosnia. It's been used uh, to create Kosovo. It's been used in Libya and Afghanistan. Uh, you know, there's no good in any of those projects in which the United States has incorporated the expanding Europe. There are Poles who've died, lots of Poles died in Afghanistan. For, for what? But anyway, uh, in its, 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 its drive to expand, uh, NATO enjoys the solid support of the U.S. media, which treats NATO as sort of like UNESCO. It's like this benevolent association rather than a ferociously expanding uh, uh, amoral juggernaut. One thing uh, I I think should be looked at carefully, and that is the evolving relationship with Germany, which is, you know, with France, one of the king and Britain, one of the kingpins of uh, NATO and certainly the wealthiest the member. Germans need natural gas, lots of it. They can get it from Russia. There's this Nord Stream 2 project bringing Russian oil and and gas to northern Germany for dispensing throughout Europe. It is vital to the future of the European economy. But Biden and the presidents before him have urged, in fact, demanded that the Germans end this collaborative uh, project with Russia because it will weaken the alliance, they say. It will weaken NATO because one of our members will be so dependent or several of our members will be so dependent upon the evil Russians. And uh, Angela Merkel, to her credit, actually, would say uh, this is a a matter of trade relations between two countries in a period of peace. You have no business vetoing our uh, agreements with Russia. And yet the entire U.S. banking system is posed to penalize Germany if it goes through with this arrangement. So what I'm trying to say is that uh, the expanding and evil NATO is also undergoing some uh, some fraying or there's some uh, some weakening in the ties, which can only be a good thing, well, in my opinion. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Gary Loop, who has joined us tonight for this uh, very lively, I think, <laughs> discussion about uh, the situation in Ukraine vis-a-vis Russian troops on their own territory, but on the eastern side of the eastern border with Ukraine. Gary, I thank you once again for joining us, and uh, I hope our listeners will um, give us some feedback on this at some point. But uh, thank you so much. All right. Happy Year of the Tiger. Yeah, yeah. Happy New Year to you. Yep. Bye-bye. Take care.
All right. That was Gary Loop, professor of history at Tufts University, who is an expert on Ukraine and related topics.